For we ask this in his name, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Amen. So tonight we're here to remember what happened a little over 2,000 years ago on a cross, on a hill, outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And if there is an object or a symbol in history that somehow sums up the gospel, of course, that symbol would be the cross. Uh, it could have been perhaps other things. could have been perhaps the symbol of a fish. Um, after all, Jesus said to a group of fishermen, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's a sense in which the, the fish symbolized the mission that Jesus himself had and passed on to his disciples. Uh, the symbol for our faith could have been a lamb. Jesus was, after all, according to John, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He was the one last sacrificial lamb. Uh, it could have been a dove, symbolizing the coming of the Spirit, being poured out on the people of God, empowering us and giving us gifts and working in us in such a way to help us become more like the person we worship, the God that we worship, Jesus. But the central symbol of our faith perhaps could have been a number of things, but of course it's not. The central symbol is, again, the cross. Ironically, a horribly gruesome device used by the Romans over 2,000 years ago, something on which thousands of slaves, thousands of criminals, thousands of enemies to the empire, thousands of traitors were tortured to death, including one Jewish carpenter. It's easy for us in our day to lose sight of the ignominy of the cross, the shame and the disgrace for a Jew dying on a cross signified the curse of God. If a Jew was killed or put on a cross to die, it was literally a symbol of God's abandonment of that person. For a Roman, it meant the worst possible humiliation, and yet this cross stands at the very center of our good news, of our gospel, of why we call this day of all days Good Friday. It's the hinge in which our whole faith actually swings. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in a city called Corinth, and he said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What an unusual thing to say. The question, of course, is why crucified? Why the cross? What's so special about the cross? And I suppose there are a number of possible answers to that question. If you've been around this church for any length of time, you certainly know some of them. The cross is God's way of demonstrating how much he loves us, to what length he would go to rescue us from the sin, from the brokenness that we find ourselves in. Uh, the cross is God's way of punishing sin, but in fact not punishing the sinner, punishing his son instead. There's a theological term for it, and we don't use this term a lot, but some of you are familiar with it, substitutionary atonement. It's the only moment in all of history, in all of eternity, when God was in some sense shocked and surprised. Because it was the only moment in eternity when the Father and the Son and the Spirit were somehow separated, where the Son was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. All of these are reasons why we call this Good Friday. And I want to reflect for a moment, uh, not just on what happened to Jesus when he died, but on this thing that happened to him just before he died. You recall the events leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus, of course, was betrayed 
by one of his own, a close friend, an apostle, Judas. He was actually, in fact, also abandoned by all of his apostles, not just Peter, but all. Jesus was being accused of blasphemy by the religious leaders. They said that he spoke lies about God. That was one of the accusations they made against him. They said that he spoke lies about his own relationship to this God, to his father. That was the term Jesus used to describe this God. Can you imagine the irony of those charges? Jesus and the father are one. Jesus made that statement uh, on one occasion. Their love for each other was perfect. It was flawless. still is. It had never been broken up to that time. Of course, never strained. Their relationship had never been anything but perfect. And yet the accusation was that he spoke lies about the Heavenly Father. He spoke lies about his relationship with the Heavenly Father. These charges <coughs> excuse me, could not have been more false. They could not have been more trumped up. They could not have been more tragic or ironic. You recall that Jesus was taken to Pilate. And in conversation with Pilate, Jesus was sentenced to death by crucifixion, even though Pilate knew these charges were trumped-up charges. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. You can even read between the lines of the gospel accounts, and it almost seems as if Pilate is trying to find a way to release Jesus and to placate the the wrath, the hatred, the enmity, the enmity of the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. But Jesus was taken, eventually, and mocked and beaten, And a crown of thorns was placed upon his head. And then he was led to Golgotha, where he was nailed to a cross. While on the cross, his side was pierced. And where we pick up the story in Matthew 27, 45, this is what we read. It says it was about the ninth hour. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just... We'll stop there for a second. You know, the Gospels are, of course, written in the Greek language. But here is one place where Aramaic is used. Understand when Jesus was growing up, Aramaic was the language of intimacy. It was the language that Jesus most often spoke. It's the language that his mother would have perhaps read to him in. It's the language that he would hear his mother speaking words of love and comfort and encouragement into his ear. And now it's the language that he uses hanging on the cross to say to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's his language of intimacy. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. You have to ask, what 
What kind of story is this? Remarkable events. Strange supernatural events. What could have caused darkness to fill the skies at midday? I mean, what could have caused the temple curtain separating the holy of holies from the, from the uh, place of holiness just outside, the temple curtain being torn in two, top to bottom? What could have caused the tectonic plates to, of the earth to shift and for rocks to crack? What on earth could have caused dead people to come back to life, to go into the city and obviously speak to people, see people uh, that they knew before they had died? I mean, something obviously cataclysmic seems to be happening, something quite supernatural. Jesus tells us that on the cross, uh, Scripture tells us that on the cross, Jesus saved his people from their sins. Paul put it this way. He said, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have his righteousness. And the question is, you know, how did this happen? How could this be accomplished? Was there something special about the cross itself? And, of course, we know that that's not the case. Thousands of Roman executions took place on crosses. Uh, Was there something uh, about the pain or the abuse that Jesus had to endure? And, again, not likely Uh, Because although the pain would be indescribable, there are more painful ways to die than a crucifixion. Was the power of the cross rooted in the fact that Jesus was unjustly accused? Because he was. Was it rooted in the fact that Jesus was unjustly punished? Because he certainly was. Or was it rooted in the fact that Jesus was unjustly executed? Well, we don't know that for this act Jesus sacrificed. Jesus had to be without sin. Uh, He wasn't paying for his own sin, but there's no reason to think that God, uh, in order to forgive sins, needed to witness an act of injustice. So that's not the direction to look for a solution. So what exactly happened on the cross that made this so cataclysmic? What caused the sky to blacken? What caused the earth to shake and the rocks to crack? I think the answer is in Jesus' final words on the cross. Jesus cries out, In the language of intimacy, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are not words of confidence. They're not words of victory. They're words of anguish. And even though Jesus knew that God had called him to this very moment, to this very ordeal, even though his whole life had been leading up to this event, and even though just hours earlier Jesus had prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And yet here on the cross, Jesus does not cry out words of great faith or confident surrender. He cries out, Why, God? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me here, here alone? I am the son you love, your beloved son. So why, Father? And we don't want to miss the terrifying reality of what was taking place. This is God's beloved son. This is his one and only unique son, the one he loves, the one who has always been in perfect relationship with him, the one who would retreat away to lonely places, just to be with his father, just to hear 
from his father and be guided by his father and be strengthened by his father. The one who faced all kinds of trials and tribulations and insults and betrayals and pain. But God was always with him through all of that. The one who said, the Father and I are one. Jesus meant that when he spoke those words. He had gone through all kinds of trials and tribulations, and the Father had always been with him right through the midst of him. But here Jesus cries out to God, and there really is no answer. Every other time there had been. In fact, every other time in human history, really, at pivotal moments where God's people needed rescuing, they would cry out to God. And there was always an answer, eventually. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they chose to disobey God and rebel against him, even though they were now ashamed and, and we read that they were hiding from God, God came pursuing them, seeking them out. He clothed them with the skins of animals who were sacrificed on their behalf. God had an answer. When Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac... He was about to do something he didn't really understand. He only knew that God had commanded him to do it. God stepped in at the last moment and provided a sacrifice. He provided a substitute for Isaac. God had an answer. When Moses murdered an Egyptian and then fled into Midian to hide, there God came to Moses and revealed himself to Moses in all things a burning bush. God had an answer. When God's people cried out in bondage to the Egyptians, God sent Moses to them. God had an answer. When Rahab feared for her life, if you remember that story, and for her family, as the Israelites were preparing to attack Jericho, God spared her life and the lives of her family. God had an answer. When Job complained about his suffering and lost everything he had and thought that there would be no answer, God showed up, revealed himself to Job, and in so doing, God had an answer. And the list just goes on and on and on and on. God rescues his people. Over and over, God shows up. God has an answer. God always, ultimately, ultimately has an answer. God never remains silent forever. God has never turned his back on his people and forsaken them. Even in their suffering, even in their trial, God was at work in them and working through them. Until, it seems, this moment that we're talking about. This moment when God's only son is hanging on a cross and crying out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We understand that here on the cross, Jesus was bearing the judgment of sin. The judgment of sin is separation from God, spiritual separation, ultimately physical separation and death. Sin results in being forsaken. And here on the cross, when Jesus was taking on himself your sin and mine, when he was becoming sin for us, He knew in that moment, he felt in that moment that the father had forsaken him. The father was not there with him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was silence. 
In that moment when Jesus asked that question, unlike every time before, there was silence. There was no answer. And the silence of God is likely the key to understanding the power of the cross. I mean, far beyond the pain that Jesus experienced, far beyond the torture or even physical death, Jesus faces the ultimate wrath of God, the ultimate penalty of sin, and it's God's silence, God's absence. You see, the greatest punishment for sin is that we would be left in it. Whatever hell is, and we could talk about that, but that's not our subject tonight. Whatever hell is, it's a place without God. Whatever hell is, it's a place where God isn't. Whatever hell is, it's a place that has been God forsaken. It's a place where people are left in sin and left in their brokenness and left with their choices, and their choices have led them to not seek God, not surrender to God, not walk with God, not love God, not know Him or honor Him. And that's what sin does. That's what sin is. Not wanting God. Not listening to God. Not caring about God at all. And yet on the cross, the one who was one with God, the one who listened to God the most, the one who cared about God the greatest, the one who was completely without sin, became sin. Consequently, he became God-forsaken. He took the abandonment that we deserve. He experienced his own Father in heaven turning his back. And in that moment, there was no rescue. In that moment, there was no answer to Jesus' question. <coughs> Excuse me. Why? So that God would have an answer for you and for me, so that God could rescue you and me. It's truly remarkable. If God hadn't taken upon himself a plan to redeem, a plan to rescue us, this is where we would all be stuck in a God-forsaken place, drifting further and further and further away from God and loving it. But God took on our sin, took upon himself our forsakenness, took upon himself the abandonment that our sins deserve so that we could draw near to him and he could draw near to us. You see, in the moment where God forsook his son, that was a cataclysmic moment. Spiritually, cosmically, a cataclysmic moment. A moment that literally shook the earth and darkened the sky and tore open tombs. Because now a door had been opened whereby the dead, the spiritually dead, people dead in trespasses and sin, could now enter into God's kingdom and into intimacy with God. That's the whole point of the curtain of the temple being rent, being torn in two. The way into the Holy of Holies was now truly once and for all open. There was a door of opportunity for anyone who comes to God through his son, Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, and the danger of these words is that we have turned to them so many times in other worship services and other contexts that we almost don't hear them anymore. When Paul originally penned them, he must have 
He must have written these words and then stopped and reflected on them and just been overcome by them. I don't see how he could not have been, but he wrote these words. He said, what then shall we say in response to this, what we've just been talking about? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not any hardship, not any persecution, not any trial, not any circumstance, nothing, not any power. Spiritual, physical, can separate us from the love of Christ because of what he did for us on the cross. He took our abandonment there. He took our sin there. Now there's nothing left that can separate us from the Father. Jesus has accomplished what no other (coughs) religious figure, belief system ever has. He took on the very weight of sin and death, and hell itself. He took on the very forsakenness of it all so that we would have a way, a way into spiritual rebirth, a way into life with God, a way into living in the kingdom of God, a way into reconciliation and restoration with God, a way out of the forsakenness and the fallenness of sin. I believe this is the deepest desire of every human heart to be made whole spiritually, relationally, to be made whole, to see relationships healthy, to see oppression end and justice be done, to see love triumph in our lives and in the world, to see all things reconciled and all things restored and all things made glorious. I think that's the deep, deep desire of every human heart. The Bible has a word for it, shalom. And it's in the kingdom of God, even now, we get a taste of the shalom, our relationship restored with our Heavenly Father. Our relationships with each other can be restored because of the Heavenly Father and Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus was forsaken and therefore created a way. And even today, in those areas where we feel the effects of sin, we experience the effects of the fall, there is a way forward. If you're stuck in some behavior that is just killing you, if you're mired in some addiction that has you in its grip, there is a way. If you're struggling with some kind of turmoil or some kind of 
pain or betrayal or anger in a relationship. There is a way. If you are struggling at work or with a career or vocation of some kind and and it just seemed like you're directionless, there is a way. If you are struggling at a deep level spiritually in your soul with just figuring out who you are, why you're here, what it's all about, what is the meaning of things, and you feel stuck and lost and alone, maybe even in some sense forsaken, in the life and the teaching of Jesus, there is a way. Interestingly, that way is displayed right here on this table in front of me, in front of you. This table depicts for us the forsakenness of Jesus. On this table, as many of you know, we have the the bread which symbolizes the body of Jesus. In the upper room, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a picture of the fact that our forsakenness had to be born in Jesus' body. The Father forsook him in that time in which he hung on the cross. Jesus took the cup in the upper room and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And here again, a symbol, a reminder to us of the forsakenness of Jesus so that we would not be forsaken. The cup of wrath of God is poured out upon his son Jesus so that the wrath of God is not poured out upon us. And remarkably, and we have we've thought about this before, Remarkably, we are called to this table that Jesus hosts, and we are called to feast upon him. We're reminded how desperately we need him. We're reminded that he is the one who makes us whole. He is the one who fixes our forsakenness. He is the one forsaken for us. We invite you to come forward in a moment and partake of this, this meal, the Lord's Supper. We, we just need to be reminded also that the one thing, the one prerequisite for coming to this meal appropriately is having faith in Jesus, knowing that he is your Savior, knowing that he is your Lord, knowing that he was forsaken for you so that you would not be forsaken. You need to come to this table with faith. And so parents, if your children are here and you're going to have them partake, you need to be confident that they understand the significance of what Uh, is portrayed, what is symbolized here on this table. We'll have three stations up front, and we'll ask you to get up out of your seats and move to the left and come forward, and you'll tear off a um, piece of bread, and, and you will dip it in either the wine, which are the goblets that have the bracelet on the stem, or we have juice, the goblets without the bracelet. And uh, then you can partake and make your way back to your seat and use the time standing in line to pray, to give thanks, to reflect. Uh, We'll also be singing, and you can use that time uh, in worship to sing as well.
So pray with me, if you would, as we prepare to come to this table. Father, here we are on what we call Good Friday. Awful things happened on Good Friday, but they became awful good things. They became the very things that would save us. What looked like the darkest, worst, most heinous moment in all of human history becomes the moment where our sins are paid for, the moment where our forsakenness is taken upon Jesus himself. We give you thanks for this, Father. And so we come to this meal with gratitude. We come to this meal with thanksgiving. And we ask you to feed us and nourish us, Father. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Would those who are going to serve us come at this time? And Jesus. Yeah.